0: Yoda Bud, I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this podcast, we talk about why it's so important to find a healthy work-life balance and even more important to have a very mature conversation about finances before moving in with your partner. We also dive into why criminalizing drugs and those who are addicted only leads to worse problems and what it truly means to be a proud Canadian on this Canada Day. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you at your best. You know, I'll tell you, if, uh, if you're thinking about moving in with someone who are, or have already done it uh, as a means by which to save money, I think I think we need to li- you need to listen to this segment that we're going to have here. We got we got an expert. She's going to help us understand um, some of the benefits, maybe some of the drawbacks. But you know, two cents, two set of utility bills, two different rents, two parking spaces. You know, two overnight bags seem to always be so. Combining your lives and moving in together sooner than planned might make for a lot of financial sales. But just imagine. Uh, You could, you know, the things you could save for travel down payment and so on. But it doesn't cost doesn't come without a cost, right? Any relationship uh, requires um, good planning, right? Good planning. And, you know, where do you want to live? And will it work for both of you? So if you're thinking about doing it, there's requirements like things to think about what happens if the relationship ends, how will our finances work? Um, who's going to take over, you know, talk about things like household responsibilities, including, including financial chores, and what are you going to do with the money that you save together? So if you're moving in as in terms of a romantic relationship, it's kind of, I think it's kind of a different scenario than if you're just moving in to save money, or if you're pretending that you're kind of really want to live together, but deep down inside it so you can save money. It's probably not a relationship that's going to work out for you. I have an expert on the phone. Her name is Sarah Stashew, and she is a consultant with Bromwich & Smith. They're licensed insolvency trustees. So we're not talking about bankruptcy or anything like that here right now, but we're going to talk about some of the benefits, maybe some of the drawbacks of moving in together. Right, Sarah, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on tonight.
0: It's a pleasure. I really appreciate you being here, and uh, happy Canada Day. So. um Thank you. So moving in together, um, you know, I I assume that based on your background, you've got some specialty in in accounting and finance and so on. So I guess from a from a um, well, maybe let's go backwards. Why don't you tell me what you do at this company as a consultant?
1: For sure. So I work at Bromwich and Smith, like you said, we're licensed insolvency trustees. So we're able to help people who are struggling with debt, considering filing for insolvency like a bankruptcy, and just mm-hmm. give them some financial advice and tips on how to avoid that overwhelming debt and what to do when they are in those situations. So my so role after trustee? our I look after our marketing, our communications and our PR.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so um, good. So we'll have a conversation that's maybe a little more practical and a little less accounting. That's great. Yeah. So would you say it's a, would you say it's a good idea? I mean, something you might do to move in with someone to save money. You know, what? it's definitely something that we are
1: seeing more and more of these days. I mean, over the last five years, Stats Canada has reported that um, those who say that they're common law has actually doubled, and we're assuming that that's just going to continue to grow. I mean, looking at the cost of absolutely everything today, when you look at how you can save money moving in together, seems like a really easy way to cut back on some of those costs. but like you so, said, there are things that come along with that
0: so I, is this something that you might do with a with a buddy, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, or you know whatever some is something you might do with a buddy or, or or is this more you're seeing this you use the term common law so then that tells me this is mostly a romantic uh, a romantic bond bond that then grows to living together or am I jumping to conclusions?
1: No, we are seeing a lot romantically, but you're completely right in saying that living together doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, but it's still a relationship that has stipulations nonetheless.
0: So you think the time uh, that you spend in a relationship, I mean, this has nothing to do with your job, but let's do it anyway. Okay. So do you think the time that's spent in a relationship, like you think you have to be with somebody for a period of time, before you actually move in with them, regardless whether you're saving money or not?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, there's so many things that come along with moving in together um, that you have to make sure that you're actually, you know, one, compatible, that you guys are on the same track, that you have the same kind of goals, if it's a relationship, romantically or friendship wise, before you take that next step. Because moving in together in any form of relationship is a big step.
0: Yeah, right. It's not just about, uh, say, sometimes <laughs> the benefit of saving money might cost you the comfort of being able to leave your toothpaste on the counter without anybody bugging you. Right. So, uh,
1: right. I uh, mean, I think we all have those horror stories of that bad roommate. So is that worth your stress and your time to save the money?
0: I don't know. So rent, I don't know about you, but rent, in yeah, it's a great question. So rent, rent in Toronto, let's say a one bedroom apartment in Toronto, one bedroom, one bath apartment in Toronto with a parking space is somewhere around $2,500 or so, give or take. Um, you know, if I, it, it, back in the day, who knows if I could have moved in with somebody and, cut my rent in half and so sh- they snore a little bit, or maybe, you know, they're not the greatest roommates, but you know, the level. So I'm interested in the level of tolerance, the balance between tolerance and savings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think depending on your age and where you are at your life, you're willing to put up with more of those kind of issues than you are. Maybe later in your life when you don't want to have those stresses that are unnecessary. Right. So it really depends on your stage of life as well.
0: Um, So I know I've been in a, a, you know, I've been with my my girl now over 35 years, a long time. I think we're going to make it. Uh, But um, I've had a bunch of relationships leading up to to that and and married before and lived with a bunch of women before that. And, you know, I always found that at the end of the day, money came up in the conversation. I, I remember relationships where people, you know, where I was going to be with wanted to have separate bank accounts. I always found the whole separate bank account thing to kind of be like a prenuptial agreement. How do you feel about that, about formalizing the relationship financially when moving in? Does it take away kind of the sizzle?
1: You know what? I think having a joint account is not always necessary. Um, maybe it's something to consider when you do move in to have one joint account that you put all the money towards your bills in or Um, You know, so your utilities, your rent, your groceries. But there's nothing wrong with keeping finances separate either. I mean, I've been married to my husband for almost 15 years, and we keep our own finances separate. We have our joint account for those household finances, and that's what works for us. What works for us might not work for everyone, but just because you're in that relationship, you do not need to combine finances.
0: What about the equality of income? I know that often people are in a situation where he earns more, she earns more. When it comes to equalizing bills, should it be based on everybody pays fifty percent regardless of how much you make, or there should be? Do you think in, there should be some, you know, kind of, uh, I, I guess, some kind of uh, uh, consideration for the level of income?
1: Yeah, you know what, it's great to be open and honest and discuss finances before you even get into that stage and say, you know what, are we going to go in this to an income split? Are we going to go into this, you know, she makes more, he makes more. But knowing ahead of that, what you're actually putting in and knowing that, you know what, maybe I'm paying less on the utilities and less on the rent, but I'm putting more towards the actual household duties. I'm cleaning. I'm taking out the garbage. Uh, I'm going to be making the dinners because that's also a, a valued effort as well, right? And having a backup plan. What happens if you guys are doing a 50-50 split and your, your partner loses their job or their commission boost and they're sick right. and they're not able to work? Do you have a contingency plan for that or are you willing to step up yourself in that case?
2: Totally against using credit cards. Red flag. Green flag.
1: You mo- can afford mo- everything. Most
2: people don't know how to
0: use a credit card. There you go. Here's a couple that, uh, trying to figure out how to use a credit card and agree to just something as simple as that. Sarah Steshu is my guest this evening. She's a consultant with Bromwich and Smith. They are licensed insolvency trustees. Sarah, thanks for sticking around and being here. Um, you could hear just a clip there. <clears throat> People just a couple, they're married couple actually, according to the clip information, <laughs> uh, who can not agree on whether they should use a credit card, not to use a credit card. Um, how do you how do you sit down and have the proper conversation with your partner about money stuff?
1: You know what? You just have to be willing to be open when you're discussing finances and talk about it on a regular basis. Finances are one of those things that can change, you know, on a day's notice. Something comes up and it can throw everything that you've kind of had on track kind of out of whack. So when you get into these kind of relationships and you're looking at combining incomes or combining your finances, There's obligations that each person is going into, and the other one's not necessarily responsible for, right? So that could be current debt that they already have, or loans, or things like that. You have your own spending habits. So talking about where you are in terms of savings, paying down your debt, and kind of goals that you want to achieve financially would be a great starting point.
0: What do you do if one of you, so my wife and I, to be perfectly honest, so I'm a bit of a spender, She not so much. So you know, for example, you know, I realize that Uniqlo now makes T-shirts with a picture on it, so I bought pretty much every one they have. Um, But you know, she's not; she's much more reserved. She gives me a little bit of room, but once in a while, she'll say to me, "Hey, you know what? Rain it, rain it in a little bit." Appropriate or inappropriate?
1: Yeah, you know what? There's things that will work for some relationships, and some won't work for others, right? So it might be keeping those finances separate and only having. The set-upon income that goes towards the household, so you each still have your own discretionary spending. Some couples will go into it saying, you know what, if it's a purchase that's under, you know, $200, then you don't have to talk about it beforehand. But if it's over that limit, then we have a discussion, right? So by have, being able to actually talk to each other, not hiding things, you're going to see what works in your relationship. And you might have to kind of alter it as you go along. But being, again, open to having communications, you know, we know that talking about finances is tricky and kind of taboo for a lot of people, but by putting light on it and talking about it, it's going to be a lot easier.
0: I think you brought up the B word, the famous B word, meaning budget, right? So uh, a budget, right? So when you're looking at the budget together... um, compromise you stand your ground you like what you're thinking of like how do you and your husband manage big big charges like big investments or big expenses you know more than 200 bucks I mean I don't want to put the light on you too much but how do you guys you know in your how do you discuss the possibilities or the need for big investments and so on how do you guys you know sit down and chat about it
1: yeah so you know what we actually sit down we have one big big conversation every year kind of on our anniversary which is close to the end of the (laughs) the year and so we say this is what we've done this year and this is what we're proud of and these are the achievements we've made and you know what this is our goal for next year and then we just kind of have monthly kind of check-ins with each other and we'll say okay you know what you know i just got this big raise at work or i got a promotion or you know i i overspent on christmas and we actually say okay so how do we kind of steer forward and we just talk about it and it's something that honestly didn't come naturally to us at first and you know i think there was a lot of hiding some spending or you know <laughs> hiding some debt and you just aren't comfortable with it but once you open it up and say you know what i'm struggling and i need some support it makes it a whole lot easier when you're able to be vulnerable so we'll sit down and we'll talk about it and we're completely open and honest with no secrets financially
0: so um often people come uh I'm sure come to you in situations where one of the partners or maybe both come from a previous relationship or previous marriage where there might in fact be you know uh child uh, child care fees or some form of of uh of support for the 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 spouse the previous mm-hmm. spouse um how do, how do you think people should kind of should they accommodate it together or is it on me if it's on me or on you if it's on you
1: you know, I think it's completely dependent on your relationship. I, more often than not, we are seeing, you know, that biological parent taking on more responsibilities for that. I mean, to be open and honest with it, I had a situation with my relationship where, you know, I had chosen to bring my kids to a different school and there was tuition fees associated with it. And because it was my decision, I foot the bill for that. And that was just something that we discussed as a as a couple right so a lot of the time you're finding that the biological parent is kind of taking more um authority and more um ownership of those fees for that child but then you look into it too there's also not only you know spousal payments or spousal support but there's also tax credits that can be associated with those fees as well right so If you're going to be paying it, are you you going to be getting that tax receipt or does it make sense for your spouse who makes less money for them to be receiving that tax receipt? So there's a whole big picture around what makes sense to, and again, there's no cut and dry answer.
0: It really depends on the, the couple. You think it's a good idea for someone to come to uh, to come to uh, your organization and, and sit down and have a conversation with uh, one of the one of the accountants, perhaps someone at uh, Bromwich and Smith. Um, maybe does it make sense to sit down with a, an accountant or someone who knows about money with your partner and kind of work it out together? Maybe a third party make it a little easier.
1: Definitely, I think having someone else who isn't kind of right in the middle of that situation to say, you know what. This is what it actually looks like on paper, and this is the best resource. These are the opinions that I can offer you. I mean, we are seeing so many more people month after month filing for insolvencies because they're experiencing overwhelming debt. I mean, if we look at this past May compared to April, overall across Canada, insolvencies were up 14%. So that's huge numbers um, when we actually look at the totals. People are struggling, and people aren't actually um, afraid anymore to reach out for help. So I'm talking to the experts. Getting the best resources possible will get you on track um, financially.
0: Do you think Canada is one of the best countries in the world to live in? Well, let me tell you, we're number one. Canada claims the most top 10 livable cities in the world. Believe it or not, let me know what you think. 877 399 Nine eight nine eight. Well, I gotta tell you I've been to a lot of places in this world. a lot of, I worked for a lot of different uh, in a lot of different countries for different various reasons from time to time and had found myself in most countries uh, over the decades that I've been working. Coming home to Canada. I even lived in the US for a period of time. Coming home to Canada, we're just a different folk man. We're just our friendlier, warmer, nicer at least we used to be for sure. I don't know so much. I think since the pandemic, everyone's gotten a little bit snarky, a little bit unhappy, just a little bit overwhelmed, such that maybe they're not behaving at their best. But in terms of Canadian cities at their best, once again, three Canadian cities have claimed top 10 honors on the Economist Intelligence Unit's Global Livability Index, more than any other country on the list. Vienna, Austria held on to its top spot in 2023. That is the best place in the world to live, apparently. And his success is attributed to a winning combination of good culture and entertainment, reliable infrastructure, stability, and excellent education in healthcare sectors. However, there's two Australian cities, Sydney and Melbourne, jumped into the top five. They bumped out Calgary out of its number three ranking last year. Alberta's largest city slid down to the seventh place this year, tied with Zurich, Switzerland. So if you can't get to Zurich and you think it's a great place to go, apparently Alberta's right there, right beside it. Calgary. I'm going to be there in a week in a little bit. I'm doing a cross-country thing from Calgary. We're going to Calgary, Banff, Banff to Lake Louise, Lake Louise to Kelowna, Kelowna to Victoria, Victoria to Vancouver, up into Whistler and back. um, Driving. Once we get to, we're going to fly from Toronto to Calgary. We're going to fly, we're going to drive around and stop in some of the studios that my friends work in. I can do a little bit of radio from there. And we're just going to have a blast meeting Canadians because. They're the folks I want to chill with, that's for sure. Calgary's dip, by the way, can likely be attributed to what the uh, what the researchers called a return to order following the pandemic. had an impact on a bunch of the people's uh, rankings, countries' rankings. Last year saw Australia cities uh, take a big tumble in the rankings after a particularly infectious strain of COVID seized the island continent. Uh, they've seen their scores in the healthcare category improve since last year, by the way. And when they were still affected by COVID wave, that stressed their healthcare system and uh, bounced them out of that spot that they were in the year before. However, Canada was the only country in the world to have three of its cities crack the top 10. Australia and Switzerland were the only other countries to post more than one city on the top pile. So in fact, the overall index has now reached a 15-year high thanks to pandemic recovery. The average index score is now 76.2 out of 100. Up from seventy-three point two a year ago in terms of the criterion necessary to you know figure out uh, what cities uh, are the best to live in and what aren't. So education has emerged, by the way, as the, as um, emerged stronger with children returning to school uh, alongside significantly reduced burden on hospitals and healthcare. So these are the things that they look at, right? They look at things. So for example, uh, out of one hundred and seventy-one cities, uh, one more on, on more than thirty qual. Um, Thirty uh, qualitative and quantitative factors, for, according to the the study, across five broad categories. Okay, so here's what makes up how you decide what countries and cities qualify. Right, there's one of the the, the key performance indicators, as they would say: stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education and infrastructure, access to healthcare. The amount of green space, I hope Mr. Ford's listening to that as we're here in Ontario thinking about taking back some green space and developing it, amount of green space, cultural and sports activities, crime rates and infrastructure are some of the factors considered in the rankings. Okay, so you're ready? Drum roll, please. The top 10 cities, Vienna, Austria, number one, Copenhagen, Denmark, Copenhagen, number two, Melbourne, Australia sydney australia so melbourne and sydney three and four number five vancouver canada i can hardly wait to get out there zurich switzerland right there too and i've been there a few times it's a great place not as good as canada but it's a great place number nine is toronto number 10 osaka japan and auckland new zealand so we've got vancouver calgary and toronto um Calgary and Geneva are neck and neck, as we said earlier. Um, so it's it's interesting. It's really interesting to see which countries rank uh, and where they fit in the world. Osaka, Japan is a beautiful place, very orderly. Uh, people are very kind, very polite. Um, and there are some places we're going to get to here in a little bit. There's some places in the world that aren't so cool, right? They're just, uh, yeah, just aren't so cool. And you know what? It, it, when you're looking at places to live, you know, these are the, some of these Key factors might be interesting for you. I know when my wife and I decided to move to the U.S. for a period of time. You know, education was a big deal. We had little little kids, and where they were going to go to school made a big difference, right? Um, so we're finding that these countries are being measured based on a whole bunch of factors that seem to be um, improving quality of life in those countries and cities. The easing and removal of pandemic restrictions in Asia specific Asia Asian. Pacific cities, many of whom faced hard lockdowns in the pursuit of zero COVID. That meant a big jump in a lot of the livability scores. So eight of the top 10 climbs on the overall index were Asian cities, including Hong Kong, which moved up 13 places since last year to rank 61st uh, 61st, uh, most livable in the world. Residents line up to get tested for coronavirus at a temporary testing center for COVID in Hong Kong. So these are pictures uh, that are part of this um, thing, and according to that, that kind of turned down the livability scale. Right, um, there was a decline in stability. The least uh, in that in those countries, the least little change in least livable, uh, least livable places. The bottom of the list saw ch- few changes. Um, Ukraine city Kiev returned to the list la- uh, this year after being excluded. During a Russian's invasion, war in the Ukraine, resulting in ec- economic and political uh, issues, for sure, have a, have a, an impact on their on their uh, rankings. So, uh, Cameroon, Douala, Cameroon, Kiev, Ukraine, Hari, Zimbabwe, Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, Papua New Guinea, pa- uh, Karachi, Pakistan, uh, Lagos, Nigeria, Algeria. Uh, Tripoli in in Libya and Damascus in Syria are the places you don't want to go. Okay, so if you're crossing the border because you choose to go to the United States on this beautiful Canada Day long weekend, do not travel with marijuana. As Canadians gear up for one of the busiest travel weekends on both sides of the border, being reminded not to cross into the States carrying any cannabis without Without official authorization, you're not able to carry any cannabis across the border. Canadian Border Services Agency released travel advice moving ahead. Although cannabis is legal in Canada and many U.S. cities, the agency's message was don't bring it and don't take it with you. Right. Don't bring it. Don't take it with you. That might be something as simple as, you know. Rolling papers might be enough to cause them to to let you cross the border. So bringing any cannibals across the border, any form including oils or uh, edibles of any kind, uh, can be a serious criminal offense. And by the way, I've learned something recently, that the border control people in the United States, immigration, homeland security, do not have to let you into their country. Nor do they have to give you a reason not to let you into their country. So if you're acting like a jerk, at the border because they don't let you do this, this, or this, and you're not being respectful and doing what you should be, which is paying, you know, the necessary respect to these officers that they deserve, chances are they may not let you in because they don't like your attitude. And then you're gonna go and 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 maybe you know go to a lawyer and say they didn't let me in because they they didn't like my attitude. And by the way, you never want to get re- you never want to get refused because once you get refused into the US, it goes on your record. And that can be a real pain in the butt the next time you're trying to cross. So don't piss these people off. Don't carry your weed across the border. No no pipes, no papers, no any kind of paraphernalia, all of it. Anything related to cannabis is not allowed. And although once you get across the border, if you're driving or flying, once you get into any major city in the United States, you get all the weed you want, right? Most most places have a recreational uh, license, a recreational access agreement, and it's available to you. So not the end of the world. Just be super careful. That's what's important is be super careful when it comes to crossing the border with cannabis products, even cannabis on your breath, smelling your car, anything like that. So be careful so you don't need to hire yourself a lawyer and spend thousands of dollars trying to prove that it was no big deal, man. It was just one gummy. We're talking about the criminalization, and decriminalization of drugs and uh, how the criminalization actually creates more crime than it prevents. Have a listen to what a cop says here uh, who's talking with an addict who's smoking fentanyl.
2: Hi there. Put that knife away, please. What are you smoking? Fenty. Oh, okay. Just yeah. powder fentanyl?
0: Yeah.
2: Is that what you drop right there? Yeah. Right there? Yeah. Can you pick that up so someone else doesn't find it or a kid doesn't find that, please?
0: There you go. There's a, a cop having a calm conversation with somebody who's uh, uh, smoking fentanyl, a uh, highly, uh, highly addictive drug. And if not uh, used, uh somewhat wisely if there's such a thing it can kill you pretty much instantly uh i have an expert who's going to join us here his name is mark hayden he's the professor at the university of british columbia's school of population and public health and we're going to talk about the decriminalization criminalization criminalization of drugs and all that kind of stuff here uh, over the next couple of segments mark welcome to the show thanks for being here
2: thanks Yona. it's a pleasure to be on your show
0: Thanks, man. Um, How effective has the um, criminalization of drugs been in preventing uh, drug-related crime uh, in this country, in your opinion?
2: Well, the first drug law in Canada was 1908, um, the Opium Act. And so we have over 100 years to reflect on the impacts of prohibition and what we can conclusively say it has been an absolute and miserable failure. As a social policy, it flunked.
0: Yeah, it says here in the article that I'm reading that no country would declare war against an enemy after giving it money to buy weapons and raise an army. Yet that's precisely what we're doing in our war on drugs. People do not use illegal drugs because of their cost, their high costs. uh, But suppliers only supply them because of that cost. It's money over money, right? I mean, Mark, at the end of the day, it's all about cash.
2: Yeah, there there is, you can argue, I've been standing in front of audiences for decades, talking about the failure of the war on drugs, failure of drug prohibition, and advocating for an evidence-based health approach to drugs in our society. And it's funny, over the decades, it's, um, I can use economic arguments, I can use health arguments, I can use the increase of crime arguments. It doesn't really matter. Any way you look at the process of drug prohibition, it, it comes up as a failure. It doesn't work. It does not protect our children, is the absolute bottom line.
0: Yeah, and we're looking at things nowadays. I mean, you know, I'm an old school guy, but now we're, you know, we're looking at stuff. I have articles here that talk about uh, the study that uncovers, Canadian study uncovers significant reductions in substance abuse after using psychedelics, you know, drugs to help reduce the dependency on drugs. Um, I, I'm not sure we're. Moving in the right direction, you know, meth, you know, methadone and Suboxone to help with those that have opioid disorder, uh, opioid use disorder. Uh, I mean, are we just putting a Band-Aid, You think on the actual, uh, on the actual wound, or are any of these programs, these social programs, making a difference to to help turn the turn the, the tide a little bit? Well, the the, pre- the process that I recommend
2: is first of all acknowledging that prohibition doesn't work. It is a miserable failure, it does not protect our children, it does not save us money as a society, it does not reduce access to drugs. And so the process using the criminal justice system as a model to approach drugs doesn't work, we know that. So what would happen if we used a health system? So what would happen if we used a health system that was responsive to evidence? Because right now what we have is these ideological battles in our society. People with different ideological stances argue with each other about what's best. What would happen if we did it differently? What would, we, what would happen if we said drug policy should be like cancer treatment? With cancer treatment, it keeps changing, and it keeps changing as the evidence changes. What would happen if we said, okay, we're not going to criminalize drugs anymore. We give it to the health folks, the health administrators of the world, and then we say, do your best, and we will monitor and engage you with a discussion around the what the evidence of what you're doing is, and then you change it based on the evidence. What would happen if we had an evidence-based approach to drug policy? That's essentially the fundamental question that I ask.
0: And what's the answer?
2: Well, the answer is we would be on the right track because we know we have, as I say, over a hundred years of prohibition. It's a miserable, it's an expensive, miserable failure. And so an evidence-based approach says we basically need to start looking at, let's go back to your first question. So does drug prohibition increase crime? So what we know is that people who sell drugs en masse, the the downtown east side, are organized criminals. You know, it's not just one individual. It's groups of criminals. And when you have groups of criminals working together, it's called organized crime. And now these are essentially business people. They're there for the money. Now, if you're running a normal legal business and you have a conflict with a... Competitor, you solve the problem by going to lawyers first. And if that doesn't work, you go to a judge and you go to a court. That we have processes in our society that solve problems. If you're a criminal that is selling drugs, you still have conflicts. You have to solve your conflicts in a different way, which basically means shooting people. I mean, as I say, I've been talking about this for decades. And what I listen to in the radio is, you know, Sunday morning will come around and I'll be driving somewhere and I'll listen to A report and it says an individual or individuals were shot. It was a targeted shooting and the individuals who were shot were known to the police. It's the same story. So what does that actually mean how I interpret that is essentially it's it's a drug war. It's it's a conflict between organized crime groups. And this is how they solve conflict is they shoot each other. So it essentially is this ongoing criminal process. It, it was funny. I've, I've worked with the VPD quite a bit over the years. I was one of their trainers on mental health and addictions. And the 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 the, 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 the inspector who was in charge of vice once um, was talking to me informally. And what he said is how the police work is they gather information for a period of time and then they make a big bust and they take out a lot of the kingpins and then they go back to gathering information. And what he knew is the moment they made the big bust is there would be an explosion of violence in the downtown east side because not only did they take out the, the leaders, but they also created a job opportunity for other people. And immediately yeah. they would fight to get the job. And so they would, the, way they, the way they get promoted is they battle each other until a leader emerges. Oh. And that's just the process. And so that doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for any of us. It doesn't work for parents. It doesn't work for community members.
0: Let's have a listen. I want you before we get back here with my uh, my guest, Mark Hayden. Um, I want you to have a listen to a man. Um, he's nine months sober in this clip uh, on how difficult it is and uh, kind of how to live uh, live with it. So uh, put, run that tip uh, clip for me there, Tim.
2: It's, it's all about the individual.
1: I mean, and what they what they want for themselves. When it comes down to addicts, um, you can't force them to get clean. They gotta want to do it themselves.
0: Oh, there you go, Mark. Uh, it's really the, the whole story is, um, you know, you can't you can't criminalize somebody uh, and force them to get the help that they need. It doesn't seem to work very well. Um, I'm even finding situations where people are um, incarcerated and uh, end up with a, a stronger, more active drug habit in um, in prison than outside of prison. Does that factor into your into your work, into your study, looking at what Absolutely. incarceration brings?
2: Yeah, jail is crime school for the same three reasons that Harvard Law is up across training school, because three things happen in jail that happen in Harvard Law. One is you learn some stuff, two is you're constantly told who you are, and three is you make connections. So people graduate from Harvard Law and do very well in our society. People graduate from jail often more hardened and more dedicated, more focused, and quite frankly, more skillful as criminals. Jail does not work as a solution to a health problem.
0: So what are the what are the potential? Um, so bearing all this in mind, um, what do you what do you think if, if I gave you if I gave you a, I guess, somewhat of a an unlimited budget and kind of a, a key to the problem and said, OK, Mark, uh, you got a lot of experience here. What would you do to solve the opioid crisis in Canada um, based on you know what you know and what you study? What would you do?
2: Well, I would start by saying it's not a prohibition problem. Take all the money that we're spending on police courts, jails, border guards, the whole criminal industrial system, and say, okay, that net money is now going towards health. And then you ask the health folks what they do, and then you monitor them closely, and you change the program based on the evidence that you're seeing. So it would be an iterative process. You know, It would probably involve initially engaging people in health centers, people who are consistently addicted to opiate drugs can now receive their drugs through health services in a way that is an engaging positive supportive health process it wouldn't just be methadone; it would be everything it would be heroin it would be fentanyl the older folks like heroin the younger folks tend to prefer, prefer fentanyl now but it's a process of engagement where it would be a whole lot cheaper quite frankly to allow people to access drugs through a health system The current process is really expensive. Reduce the costs, give the money to health, and see what they do. And then monitor it closely. What we should see is reduced sales of drugs. We should see increased health of our society. We should see reduced overdose outcomes. We should see reduced HIV and Hep C. And then continue to give the health services that are providing these services feedback and let them tweak the program to get it right. I would also suggest the goal is to minimize the harms of drugs but maximize the benefits of drugs. In my world, I also work now, I've moved from mostly talking about drug policy to talk about the potential healing for psychedelics. In my world, I would also have psychedelic healing centers. I would have um, a variety of different psychedelics used by, by very skilled therapists to heal PTSD, depression, anxiety, a variety of different mental health diagnoses. That could be treated more more inexpensively and quicker and more durably than existing mental health medications. So if we said the goal was to minimize the harms and maximize the benefits of drugs, then we would have a very different model.
0: I got to tell you, you I've been at this a long time, many decades, and I'm sure we could share a lot of war stories. Uh, I can't tell you. on one hand, out of the thousands of patients that I've worked with, I can't tell you on one hand, a success story related to somebody going on to an Ibogaine or ayahuasca program or, you know, nowadays testing with, uh, with uh, magic mushrooms and, and, and such like that, LSD in the U.S. Um, they, they seem to work fairly well with some mental health issues, bad dreams, PTSD, as you said, but I don't see it curbing the, the desire and the need for the use of drugs on a daily basis. Tell me something I'm missing.
2: Well, what we need is health research. So what we need to do is try people that have different types of diagnoses, put them through different programs. I mean, I I worked in the addiction services for most of my career. I had 28 years running an addiction services program. And you're right. Our successes were miserable. Quite frankly, we never had anybody coming in with a transformative experience saying, thank you very much. I'm healed. It never happened. So it's a difficult population to treat. And so what we need is more tools. We need a lot more tools. And then we need to monitor the outcomes of the treatment programs and change them as they start to evolve and, 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 and affect people. It's interesting that I, I as I say, I worked for a program called uh, Qi Integrated Health and we're running a psychedelic treatment program starting with ketamine and i've looked at my i've looked at my wife who's a psychiatrist straight in the eye and what i said is the work that we are going to going to doing now is going to transform your profession because if you look at existing mental health treatments antidepressants don't work very well in fact there's lots of evidence that says they don't work better than placebo and yet we do know that psychedelic treatments are more effective so let's let evidence guide us not these ideological positions
0: Wow. So uh, what's kind of conversations go on at your table? You know, what, what you know, your wife is pure science and all medical, I'm sure. And I'm sure yes. quite talented at what she does. You you're, you're seem to have a much more touchy feely kind of approach to it all. Um, is there a place where you land together? Um, absolutely. You
2: know, I mean, she's interested. She's interested in the work and she's interested in the science as well. I mean, we're both interest. We both believe that science should guide it, and and these ideological positions actually don't work. And there's people that are ideologically against psychedelic treatments, in spite of the growing evidence for their uh, for their effectiveness. And I just think that Health Canada should approve clinical trials. It should allow them to go through the normal turning a molecule into a medicine process, and then people should be allowed to prescribe them in the context of health. And then we just watch the outcomes, and we adjust based on the outcomes that we see.
0: Mark, where do you think CBD, THC fits in all of this, medical use of cannabis?
2: Well, it's interesting because there was a medical track in the Canadian evolution of this, and there was a lot of discussion around it being medicalized, and then it suddenly changed, and it became recreationalized. Is that a word? I'm not sure. And so the whole medical discussion kind of got squashed by by the recreational movement, I personally think we need to look at the medical impacts and and you've nailed two of them. THC is different from CBD and so what we need is we need evidence to be able to recommend these things. Physicians, it was interesting, The, the world of, the medical world was not very well engaged by the cannabis community and so you can't normally, currently most physicians aren't willing to talk to you about cannabis because they weren't informed and they weren't engaged and it wasn't actually yeah. turned into a medicine. So I, I think physicians should be engaged and they need to be engaged with evidence. And so we need to look at that question. What, should, what conditions should CBD used for? Does it help people sleep disorders is a good question. Does it help with people with their eating, you know, glaucoma, whatever, the list of things that are talked about um, should be subject to science. And then that science should be available to physicians
0: and they should be able to prescribe it or recommend it based on the evidence that they have on hand.